trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Each week, I absolutely look forward to the opportunity to visit with my friend Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric is back, and Eric, uh, it's become kind of a habit. There's just there's no shortage of uh, new weirdness to have to address. <laughs> Monkeypox now is right. on, on the top of our minds. Yeah, you and I are old enough to remember disco fever. Now we've got ape fever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got to get your take on this. We laugh only because there's really nothing left to do but laugh. But, hey, the World Health Organization is meeting to consider this big treaty about how to standardize pandemic response in every nation that signs on to it. And lo and behold, there's a brand new pandemic apparently breaking out. Yeah, you know, this reminds me on the comedic side of the old series Get Smart. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, which, which made a parody of spying and intelligence gathering, and they just went over the top with ridiculous, cheesy things. And, you know, here we are, monkeypox. Come on, for crying out loud. And that's why I, I refer to it as ape fever. They, they keep coming up with one progressively more ridiculous name for what's supposed to scare us out of our britches after another. You know, like you and I were talking about off the air, you got to wonder, how, mu- how much longer are people going to continue to, to fall for it. It's, it's like a, it's, it's almost like a, uh, like a pratfall routine, you know, just one thing after the next, but then there's the non-comedic side, which is this extremely alarming uh, international agreement that they're trying to put forward by executive fiat because they haven't got the ability to pass it as a treaty uh, would normally be passed by the Senate and uh, would then become essentially a superseding of, of whatever laws are in force in this country to give the WHO, the World Health Organization, which is basically China, the Chinese are behind the WHO, uh, the ability to dictate to uh, Americans uh, how they're going to be herded like cattle the next time they screech, pandemic, ape fever, everybody locked down. I'm really hoping, and maybe I'm just whistling past the graveyard on this one, Eric, but it seems like people reached a point where finally they just said, enough. And when the polling numbers reflected that people had reached that number, lo and behold, that's when people in authority, the ruling class, backed off with the mandates, backed off with, you know, jab or job stuff. But uh, I have a a sense that this is all going to come rushing back, and I have no idea how many people are going to draw the line and say, no, I'm not going to fall for it again. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I'm waiting with bated breath to, to see about that, too. And I don't think it's a coincidence. I generally don't believe in coincidences when they're too coincidental that uh, all of a sudden we're hearing about the dreaded monkeypox slash ape fever at just the moment that this treaty is being put forward and pushed uh, onto the populace. And the timing couldn't be better. You know, they're getting ready to do something, which they have to do, I think, uh, about the, the pending midterm elections, because that has the possibility of being a mass repudiation of all of this. And, and they simply can't allow that to happen. So I, I do expect them to try something very dirty, and this may well be it. And I guess we're just going to have to wait and see how many people are going to be willing to do it again, yet again. Well, and and there's talk that uh, the U.S. has actually bought millions of doses of monkeypox vaccine. So I, I have to wonder sure. if there's another mandate uh, waiting in the wings, you know, to, to be foisted on the American public, as well as other populations. Well, 
And doesn't it beg the question, where did this monkeypox vaccine come from? How is it that they had, I think the figure is something like 100 million uh, um, uh, individual vaccines or shots or however you want to put it for this pox, which nobody had heard about or was talking about, you know, outside of a very few small circles uh, just a month or so ago. How did they anticipate that? Hmm, what another coincidence, kind of like just before the pandemic, March 1, March 1 with the Rona, a couple of months literally before that, they had this, this, uh, this mock um, scenario of a world pandemic happening yep. with usual suspects behind it. So, you know, they, you and I have talked before about how they've become just blatant about it. They're not even uh, attempting really to, uh, to hide what they've got up their sleeves. If you, you know, just keep your ears open and pay attention, you can see they practically tell us, you know, they're, they're that bold now that they're just willing to put it right out there and say, yep, this is what's coming uh, and, and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's really hard not to go full Alex Jones. When you see this stuff start to play out, especially where it's all just happening one after another after another, uh, the best advice I've seen so far this week was someone said, you really need to get a friend who's a conspiracy theorist to explain to you what's about to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, as far as Alex, I, I don't know the man. I've not been on his show, um, uh, but he has been right about a lot of things. I wish he weren't so over the top and and, and for that reason come across as, as a, a kind of a cartoon type figure and constantly trying to sell his products for male vitality and all of that, because I think it undermines his message. A lot of his messaging was spot on, especially if you go back, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago and listen to what he was saying, which at the time did sound completely crazy and over the top tinfoil and all of that. But by and large, the guy was on the money. Yep. And, and, and because he was on the money, that doesn't mean that anybody else who notices these things must be as unhinged or, you know, as, as over the top as, as Alex Jones. I mean, Look, you can be a kook and you can still get it right, but uh, it seems like, th- as you mentioned, it's not like this is being kept in the dark anymore. I mean, come on, the World Economic yeah. Forum is meeting in Davos right now. They're very open about what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I and, and others, I think, uh, have been very careful to not be, you know, over the top, to not yell while we're talking, and to not make uh, exaggerated claims that we can't support with facts, to be nuanced and reasonable. And I think that's very important. And I think anybody who adopts that attitude can see for themselves what's going on. You know, it's not a matter of, of trying to hawk some kind of so-called air fingers quotes conspiracy when it's right there and it's a fact. You know, it is a fact that the WHO uh, is attempting to establish a de facto world government in the name of, uh, of health. And it is a fact that the, the government of this country and a number of other countries are preparing to sign on board of that and thereby sign away our right to have any kind of real control over what the government does to us. You know, we're, we're told constantly that we live in a democracy. Well, what good is a democracy when your representatives literally cannot, by law, do anything to counteract an international treaty and are essentially just kind of like low rent? I don't know what the word would be, but they're not, they're not, they're not meaningfully representatives in the way that we're told that they supposedly are. Right, just functionaries. There to carry out yeah. uh, the the wishes the of those those above them, and here's That's this is word. this is the part that gets me. It's not just you know that oh wow here comes a pandemic and somebody's going to want to initiate lockdowns. Um, if if I'm reading this correctly, and please feel free to to give me your thoughts on this mm-hmm. too. It's the implementation of uh, central bank digital currency, the um, social credit scores that go along with that, uh, vaccine passports, or at least, you know, some kind of a health passport. This is about getting everybody into a system in which you operate through the approval of those who are in power. 
yeah, they're all tied together and they're all necessary to establish what they want. Uh, you know, if they can digitize currency, uh, they can eliminate all anonymity, all privacy and transactions. They have utter control over you because they have utter economic control over you. And then they'll use their social credit regime to enforce all of that by, by basically threatening people that, you know, if you hold heretical, wrong thinkable views, if you don't behave, if you don't wear your mask, uh, you don't get a shot, uh, well, then they'll simply turn off your ability to, to buy anything. You know, at least previously during pandemic mark one, we still have cash. We still have the ability to buy things without the government knowing about it, to work side gigs and thereby to end run some of this tyranny. But when they have absolute control over your money and they have absolute control over what you can think and do, then they have absolute control over you. And that that's what their purpose is here. Well, as much as we saw people push to the margins of society with the the, the mandates and, and the coercion to get everybody vaccinated, um, I I know I'm not alone in this, but I actually found I'm, I'm OK with being excommunicated from polite society. If that's what it takes, I will live a more difficult existence, but I will be free. I'll make my own decisions. Thank you. Yes, I, I you know, I also I agree with that heartily, but it would be a whole lot more difficult to do that uh, if we have to revert to kind of an Amish or Amish. I was mispronounced that barter type system where uh, we can no longer use the official legal tender of the realm. So that may ultimately prove to be a good thing, you know, uh, silver and gold. I am a big advocate of sound money uh, that can't be defrauded by central banks and can't be defrauded by government and used to control and manipulate people in the way that fiat currency can. Uh, I'm all for that. And I agree with you. You know, if, if we end up having to lead a, a, a more challenging life, that's not necessarily a worse life. No. In fact, uh, I think you and I have talked about this before. Freedom itself always carries a little bit of discomfort because there's there's mm-hmm. uncertainty. But that discomfort is uh, is still better than the comfort of, well, at least, you know, my shackles rest lightly and look how shiny they are. Aren't they aren't they beautiful? Mm-hmm. Well, isn't it in a sense the discomfort of adulthood? You know, children live in a nice, comfortable little bubble because their parents take care of them. They provide their needs. Uh, they you know keep the roof over their head. Kids don't have to worry about where their food is coming from, and they can play, and they can have a good time. And when you're a child, that's normal and natural, and you can feel comfortable. With adulthood comes that uncertainty. You know, you have to think about, well, uh, I've got to figure out a way to pay my bills. You know, and that's a little unsettling. But then there's a great feeling of empowerment that comes from being able to pay them and from empowering yourself and, and all of these other good things. Okay, hold that thought. We are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com is my guest. I actually have a link to his website in my show notes. So I hope you'll uh, take advantage of that. Read the wonderful articles and the great comments that follow. Eric, I noticed you've touched on uh, double-digit pumps. And boy, mm-hmm. gas prices. Yep. I'm I'm as concerned about them as I am about, am about anything because they really do have a far-reaching impact on just about every aspect of our lives. Sure, it's like throwing a rock into a small pond. Uh, you can see the ripples that emanate from where the rock hit the water. Uh, it's not just the, the the cost of fueling up your vehicle. It's the cost of fueling trucks and fueling agriculture and everything else that we need to live. 
You know, they are, are uh, encircling us by making energy scarce and, and expensive. And California is the tip of the spear, not surprisingly, because California is probably uh, the most or at least one of the most woke, leftist, progressive, I, I, I despise that term, socialist <laughs> states in the country. Uh, that's the accurate term for what they are. And, you know, in California, they are beginning to recalibrate the pump to anticipate double-digit gas prices. Gas prices are, there are already pushing $7 a gallon wow. for gas. Yeah, and a lot of that has to do with the extortionate taxes that they have in California that are added on to the cost of the fuel itself. Uh, and this sort of thing is being pushed at the national level by the Biden thing. Uh, who's determined to uh, force everybody into this supposed green electrified future, uh, which means our, our, <laughs> our bleak and insert future, where we can't afford to operate vehicles anymore, where we can't afford to maintain lawnmowers anymore, and therefore can't afford to live in the suburbs in the country anymore, and can all be herded into our nice stack of whole, uh apartments somewhere in an urban hive, which is controlled by people like the Biden thing. That's their end goal here. So my question is, why would Putin do this to us? <laughs> right. Well, I right. mean, he's the one they're blaming, but obviously, you know, th- there has been such a giant step backward just since Biden took office in in uh, January of 2021. It seems like every bit of, of policy regarding energy has been to step back away from fossil fuels and to make it as difficult and as costly as possible for us to get them. Yeah, you know, people are gullible, unfortunately, but they're not that gullible. Um, from what I've gathered, every poll, uh, every survey done so far indicates that, uh, by and large, most people are not buying it. You know, they are well aware of the fact that even if they didn't like the Orange Man, um, gas was about two bucks a gallon when Orange Man bad. And it only began to go up after Orange Man left and the Biden thing came in. And long before uh, Putin reared his head and this whole Ukraine business, um, uh, burbled upward. In fact, it was months and months and months of rising gas prices. So you simply cannot say that it's because Putin reared his head. No. You know, it's just it's just obviously idiotic. And, and I think only a few idiots out there actually buy into it. And I think that uh, probably explains why uh, why the Biden thing's approval ratings continue to take a dump. And the thing that interests me about that is, and it alarms me, is that these Democrats, these socialists, they don't seem to care anymore whether uh, they're popular. They don't seem to have any concern at all uh, about electoral consequences. This, this, this creature that, that shambles around in the White House has what, like a 30% approval rating right now. It's, it's absolutely devastating, assuming they think there are going to be elections and that they're going to be held accountable by the voters at some point. I'll tell you, one of the things that, that is uh, getting my attention, and this is causing a little bit of a, uh, the beginnings of an ulcer for me, I, I live mm-hmm. and work in a rural area. I work from home in a very rural area. I have farm fields all around me. I see the farm equipment that is out there getting those fields ready to plant and working those fields. And if, if I'm understanding correctly, I've talked to a couple of different farmers, what they paid for a tanker load of diesel Back in September of 2020, you know, they may have paid $10,000 for a great big tank of diesel that they would use mm-hmm. to keep those uh, those farm vehicles, the tractors and whatnot going. But uh, mm-hmm. as of March of this year, that same tanker load of diesel was well north of $30,000. Correct. It's frightening, isn't it? And it's, it goes beyond merely that. Uh, you know, petroleum products uh, are intimately related to fertilizer and to the ability to keep the crops uh, productive at the same level that we've been used to in the past. All of this 
uh, indicates that we are headed for some kind of a titanic crash of food supplies yep. or just a titanic increase in the cost of food. And bear in mind, there's synergy. There's also this whole thing with the inflation, which really is devaluation. So whatever money we have continues to be bled away by uh, the infusion of more and more money into the system by the Biden thing. So it's this combination of factors that has the potential for absolutely catastrophic effects in terms of people not being able to buy food. They're not being any food. And this is a real thing, and people should be worried about it. Yep. I especially feel for the people who live in in urban settings because their their options of producing more of their own food or, for that matter, you know, working out agreements with someone who keeps chickens or, mm-hmm. or cattle or, or goats or whatever, um, they're very limited. And so I, I don't know, man, I... I'm not trying to make it sound like, hey, doomsday's coming, but I'm thinking if you're serious about standing on your own feet, you might want to get out of those population centers where control is made so much easier for, for those in power. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, people have gotten used to the, the kind of civilizational structure that we've had in this country for the past hundred years now. Um, and they don't worry about having more than a couple of days worth of food in the house. They don't worry about uh, whether the air conditioning or the heat is going to work, the lights are going to come on, whether the fridge is going to be there, all of these things. They should begin worrying about them. Uh, you know, if the, if the power goes out, and they've already been hinting, the government has been hinting out loud that there's going to be brownouts this summer. Yep. Uh, and there's no food on the shelves, or they, they can't afford to buy food. What now? Uh, I remember reading a book, I can't recall the title of it, but something to the effect that for, for most people who live in cities and urban areas, uh, they've got about three days before they start to starve if they can't get food at the supermarket. And you can imagine the social repercussions if, if a scenario like that begins to develop. Oh, yeah. Well, and and this this comes back to we often talk about electric vehicles and the push to get everybody into electric vehicles. I mean, yeah. come on, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, well, if you can't afford gas, buy an electric car. Yeah. But if there are going to be rolling blackouts or even brownouts, does that not sound an alarm bell for people who are, you know, leaning towards EVs? And wh- how are you going to charge your EV mm-hmm. if electricity is in short it, supply? It ought to. And people like Buttigieg and, and, uh, and, and those like him are contemptible people. It is despicable to tell somebody who's out there driving a, uh, a 12-year-old car because that's all they can afford uh, and, and, and who's looking at having to put $100 worth of gas into their vehicle and who makes maybe $25,000 a year or $30,000 a year, oh, yeah, go out and buy a $40,000 electric car, buddy. I mean, who, you know, that, that kind of callousness and, and, and glibness toward the sufferings that are being inflicted on people. And keep in mind, this is not natural. This is not a phenomenon that just arose and, boy, you know, it really stinks, but we have to do our best to try to deal with it. This is entirely artificial and it's created by people like Buttigieg and the Biden thing. Well, and and... I don't know what to tell people other than, you know, you've got to make your own decisions about where your line is drawn. All I know is for me, um, those who are in power are not in any meaningful way representing me or my interests. And therefore, if there's a social contract, as they like to insist, Brian, you have to follow Mm -hmm. this. Not if you've broken it. I don't. I'll do what I have to do to protect myself and my family. Yes. You make a very interesting and astute point, which is, I think, that uh, it's no longer the case that, well, we have two different points of view, uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, about certain things. But fundamentally, we're all interested in the same thing, which is the good of the country and the good of the people. Uh, it's become quite clear that the people, at least at the federal level and a lot of people at the state level, who are actively opposed to the interests of Americans, working against them. 
for their own benefit in, in a way that's never happened before in this country. And I agree with you. At that point, we're no longer bound uh, by the things that we were once bound by because we have no voice. We have no choice other than to say, no, we're not going to put up with it. Yep. Yep. I'm going to continue to be a peaceful individual, but I'm also going to uh, I'll stop asking permission. And by your leave, may I continue to feed my family? I'll just I'll do what I need to do to to take care of them. And I will urge others to consider doing the same. Eric, great to visit with you as always. Uh, Tell people where they can find your website. Oh, sure. It's EPAutos.com and they can just look my name up on any search engine and they'll find myself that way too. Okay, great to visit with you as always. I feel I feel a little more sane after every conversation we have. <laughs> Likewise, that goes both ways. Thank you, Brian. This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And a shout-out to Dixie Chiropractic. That's the practice of Dr. Ward Wagner. You can go to their website, DixieChiro.com. Dr. Wagner has asked me specifically to reach out to three groups of people. People who are suffering from neuropathy, those who are suffering from bulging herniated discs, and also anybody who is dealing with car accident injuries. If you go to the website, DixieChiro.com, you'll see some uh, some great options available to anybody who is dealing with these types of pain. For instance, for neuropathy, you can check out the $99 Calmere Treatment Plus Massage. If you're dealing with herniated discs, here's a $99 intro special with, with two treatments plus massage. All the details are there at the website, DixieChiro.com. Sure appreciate them being a sponsor of this program. I know sometimes it, it must feel like, you know, Brian, it seems like you're you're always talking about the end of the world. And, and I just, I have some clarification to offer on this. Um, I don't believe that it's the end of the world. Now, let me clarify that by saying, I do believe that the world as we know it, the way things used to be, think back three years ago, yeah, it's it's definitely the end of that world. But as you know, life goes on, and those who are paying attention have options that those who are just kind of walking around in conditioned white with their head in the clouds and daydreaming or perhaps distracted by the latest, you know, what are the Kardashians up to or whatever, they're not going to see it coming. And the point is, there are things that have happened before that have radically altered the way the world is. We are going through one of those cycles right now. I share what I share with you, not to, you know, pretend that this is the end, this is it, you know, all is lost, because I don't think all is lost, but I definitely think uh, we've got to be okay with with things changing, and that means you've got to be keeping your eye on a number of different factors. For instance, the monetary system, are you looking at some of the challenges that are taking place there? A lot of sand has gone through the hourglass. There are very few grains remaining. Something is going to have to change soon. What we are doing right now, the system, the monetary system as it is, isn't sustainable. Got a great article here from Robert Wright, Robert E. Wright, from the American Institute for Economic Research. It's titled, Preparing for Payment System Fragility. This one's worth your time. He says, in previous posts, I've suggested ways to cope with rising prices, cost of living, um, food insecurity, wild game, and liberty gardens. But he says, inflation creates many problems. 
including an increased risk of payment system glitches like the shuttering of banking and credit card networks, leaving individuals economically stranded. Cyber attacks, power outages, financial crises, and other shocks can slow or even disable the payment system. So he says, true, a de facto or de jure moratorium on payments would ensue, but don't forget that if you can't make your payments, your employer and other debtors like Social Security or retirement or investment funds may not be able to pay you either. And he asks, how then will you buy gas or groceries? Well, the most obvious way to hedge against the payment system risk is to hold some cash. Many people who lived through the Great Depression stockpiled paper money for the rest of their lives just in case their bank went under or the ghost of Roosevelt, the president who seized their gold, declared another bank holiday. But he says few of those people are left, however, and many members of our youngest adult generation go out of their way to avoid carrying cash. In fact, he says even some old-timers like me use paper notes only when absolutely necessary. Moreover, he writes... It would be rather daft to hold on to much fiscal cash when I-series bonds are yielding north of 9%. Now, that's still a losing proposition in inflation-adjusted terms, but literally better than the nothing those limp pieces of paper pay. So if you think that you'll just saunter down to your bank and fill out a withdrawal slip like it was 1999, think again. Even if some banks remain open, they hold very little physical cash these days. Any functioning ATMs will also be quickly stripped. Given the current rate of inflation, he says a better approach might be to stockpile the non-perishables that you will need. Gasoline is tricky, but many foods can be stocked for long periods. As long as you eat it up before it goes bad, it will actually save you money by buying now instead of after prices go up again. So what happened the last time America's payment system crashed during the Great Depression? Well, he says various local and state systems failed repeatedly, starting in 1930, and in early March 1933, President Roosevelt euphemistically declared a national bank holiday. To stop currency hoarding, gold exportation, and bank failures, the new commander-in-chief shut down all of the nation's banks, including the Federal Reserve Banks, under the authority of Section 4305 of the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917. When the national emergency would end, no one knew. Yet little riotous looting occurred. Americans remained calm and made do, adapting to circumstances in nuanced ways. Some municipalities, for example, kindly locked up perpetrators who could not pay cash fines, giving them three hots and a cot for a day. Though unconstitutional, other municipalities issued tax anticipation script to employees who then made local payments with it. Some churches stopped passing the collection plate, while others accepted handwritten IOUs, More formally, the IRS accepted checks that it knew it could not deposit for collection until after the crisis. Private businesses also responded according to circumstances. Railroads, for example, allowed passengers to travel home without tickets. Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, a mutual life insurer, rightly felt that it had to make prompt payment of all verified death claims. So it always kept more cash on hand than its for-profit competitors did. During the bank holiday, it used its stash of cash to buy money orders, which it sent to beneficiaries via American Express. If the money order system had also shut down, it was prepared to courier physical cash to beneficiaries from from the home office in Manhattan or direct its local agents to make cash down payments on its behalf. 
Robert E. Wright says it probably could have borrowed informally, too, from the few companies that found themselves with large and hence dangerous sums of cash on hand. Short-term interest rates were understandably high. Businesses that did not want to expose their money to default risk in uncertain times induced local police stations and private security firms to safeguard their cash. He says most wholesale businesses, manufacturers, importers, and the like, sold to each other and to retailers on credit. So most responded to the crisis simply by extending credit lines to existing trading partners. Many retailers did likewise. General credit cards were a post-war phenomenon. In the 1930s, many retailers maintained book accounts, much as colonial retailers did, or they issued their own charge cards. But not everyone had credit accounts everywhere they shopped, so some large employers paid their employees or their workers with IOUs that local retailers were happier to accept than the promises of the poor working stiffs. Small change was in such short supply that some retailers sent shills to competitors to buy trifles with $20 bills. Some businesses responded by saying that customers could tender whatever denomination they liked, but no change would be made. Perhaps most tragically of all, a piggy bank met an unt- many a piggy bank met an untimely death, seemingly vindicating those who kept coins in easily opened glass jars. But precisely because the piggies could be raided only by destroying them, They served as commitment devices and hence held more coins, all else constant than the jars did. Some bartering also began to break out before the holiday ended. So by mid-March, most of the banks that would reopen, keep in mind some 4,000 closed permanently, already had, and the payment system had returned to its normal fragile self. The crisis led directly to the formation of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which has proven itself a wash at best. It also led to a large devaluation of the U.S. dollar and the demise of domestic gold holdings and retail gold convertibility. In other words, Americans today still suffer the costs imposed by government's New Deal solutions. Now, Robert E. Wright asks the question, what would Americans get if the payment system shuts down again? Well, that would depend on the exact nature of the crisis, but a central bank digital currency, CBDC, is a good guess. Most retailers today are not prepared to extend credit to their customers and no longer even have a way to take credit card impressions. So maybe it would dawn on them to snap pics of credit or debit cards, but many customers might worry about allowing them to do that. Innovators might come up with other clever workarounds, but most businesses will be afraid to do anything without regulatory pre-approval. Bitcoin on the blockchain or via Lightning Network or fintech platforms like Venmo might seize market share but not very much if on, and off, if on and off ramps remain blocked. As tensions mount, people will call upon the government to do something just as in March of 2020. Robert E. Wright says, One can almost hear President Biden or Harris mumbling through a Rooseveltian, You have everything to fear except CBDC speech. But he says at least Twitter users will be able to demure openly. Not that it matters, or not that it will matter. Kind of an interesting question to ponder, isn't it? And I'm not telling you there's there's one answer and one answer only of what to do. Personally, I think uh, tangible goods, something you can actually put your mitts on, is a pretty good way to store value. But it's not the only answer, right? So maybe a little bit of uh, diversification in your portfolio. All I know is uh, this is the time to sort it out now before there's a crisis. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out to sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Now, this is a family owned business located in St. George, Utah. But if you live anywhere in southern Utah, and I'm talking, you know, if you're within a couple hundred mile radius, you should probably talk to them because I bet somebody in your family understands the importance of having a good working sewing machine or a serger, or maybe they do long arm quilting. This is the place where you need to go, not only for the machines, but for the service to keep them running for generations, also for training on how to use them. I think this is one of the the neatest things that I've heard, and that is Sewing and Quilting Center will actually teach you how to use your machine. It's not like, well, you bought it, now good luck, you're on your own. They'll actually teach you how how to get the most out of it. And, of course, they sell all the supplies that go along with it. Look, this business has been in operation since 1984, uh, Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners. They're wonderful people. They are there to help you. So again, if you or someone you know really understands the importance of sewing or quilting or embroidery, this is the place you need to go. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com You know, for all the talk that we hear about disinformation, what really worries the ruling class, the reason they're always going on and on about disinformation, is that they are afraid we will recognize the reality of what they're up to. In other words, uh, Caitlin Johnstone puts it this way. They're worried about the spread of information, not disinformation. This is her latest column. And she says, we're in the final countdown to British Home Secretary Priti Patel's Patel's decision rather on the fate of Julian Assange with the WikiLeaks founder's extradition to the United States due to be approved or rejected by the end of the month. Joe Lauria has a new article out with Consortium News on the various pressures that Patel is being faced with from both sides of this history-making issue at this crucial time. And she says, I can't stop thinking as this situation comes to a boil how absurd it is that the U.S. empire is working to set a precedent which essentially outlaws information sharing that the U.S. doesn't like at the same time Western news media are full of hand-wringing headlines about the dangerous threat of disinformation. Case in point, this is from FAIR.org. Disinformation label serves to marginalize crucial Ukraine facts. Yeah. Fairness and accuracy in reporting actually is calling out the way the mass media have been spinning that label to mean <clears throat> not only knowing the distribution of fa- no, the knowing distribution of false information, but also of information that's true and is inconvenient to imperial narrative weaving. FAIR's Luca Goldman-Sauer says, in defense of the U.S. narrative, corporate media have increasingly taken to branding realities inconvenient to U.S. information goals as disinformation spread by Russia or its proxies. She says, online platforms have been ramping up their censorship protocols under the banner of fighting disinformation and misinformation, and those escalations always align with narrative control agendas of the U.S. centralized empire. For instance, Caitlin Johnstone says just the other day, we learned that Twitter has a new policy which expands its censorship practices to fight misinformation about wars and other crises. And the Ukraine war, surprise, surprise, will be the first such situation about which it will be enforcing these new censorship policies. 
Then there's the uh, recent controversy over the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board, a mysterious institution ostensibly designed to protect the American people from wrongthink coming from Russia and elsewhere. The board's operations, whatever they were, have been paused pending a review which will be led by Michael Chertoff, a virulent swamp monster and, monster and torture advocate. Remember him? He was the first Secretary of Homeland Defense. And its operations will likely be resumed in one form or another, probably under the leadership of someone with a low profile who doesn't sing show tunes about disinformation. And this all comes out after U.S. officials straight up told the press that the Biden administration has been deliberately sowing disinformation to the public using mainstream press in order to win an info war against the Kremlin. She has links to this, by the way. This is not something she's pulling out of thin air. Caitlin Johnston says they've literally just been circulating completely baseless stories about Russia and Ukraine, but nobody seems to be calling for the social media accounts of Biden administration officials to be banned. Now, she says you're seeing so many discrepancies between what the oligarchic empire says and what it actually does regarding the issue of disinformation, because the empire has no problem with disinformation. The empire that is built on propaganda and lies has no problem with propaganda and lies. It has a problem with the truth. They're not worried about disinformation. They're worried about information. They're worried about journalists using the unprecedented information-sharing power of the Internet to reveal inconvenient facts about the largest and most murderous power structure on Earth. They're worried about people finding out that they've been lied to their entire lives about their world, their nation, and their government. They're worried about people using their newly connected minds to decide together that they don't much like the status quo as it's been laid out for them and deciding to build a new one. So all the safeguards they're now setting up to manipulate the flow of information online are not there to eliminate lies. They're there to eliminate the truth. These people have a vested interest in keeping things dark and confused. And we, the ordinary people of the world, have a vested interest in shining a big, inconvenient spotlight on everything. The elite agenda to keep things darkened is at direct odds with the people's agenda to get things enlightened. Now, Caitlin Johnston says we're not being protected by a compassionate alliance of corporations and governments who only want us to know the truth. We're being manipulated and oppressed by an oligarchic empire that wants us to believe lies. That's why they're locking up Julian Assange. That's why they're censoring the Internet. That's why they're filling our minds with propaganda. And that's why we can't let them win. Now, I don't know how that strikes you. I mean, it pro- I'm guessing you wouldn't be listening to this program if you didn't at least believe, okay, that's plausible. I, I you know, may not agree, but I think it could be plausible. Actually, I think it, it makes great sense. In fact, I, I haven't seen very many people who can summarize it as, as beautifully and succinctly as Caitlin Johnstone does. But there are still a, a shocking number of people out there who seem really concerned and really upset when someone differs from the official government line. And, and I'm not trying to be unkind when I say this, so please don't think, you know, oh, here we go, it's licensed to start calling people names and assuming that they're stupid or they're evil. But I have to wonder how broken a person must be, at least mentally. They, they've been, I don't know what the mental equivalent of housebroken is, but to, to be looking for a reason, any reason, 
any shred of reason to believe that my government would not lie to me. And if it ever did, the media would surely tell us all about it. They would make sure that we knew. I had someone ask me once at a job interview, you know, it looks like you have kind of an axe to grind with, uh, with heritage media. And my first inclination was like, well, I don't know, you know, that that's the way to put it. But in, in retrospect, yeah, I actually do. I have, I have a big axe to grind. And, and the main reason I have that axe to grind is because I've been paying attention long enough and I've worked within media long enough that uh, I recognize how much deception goes on on a daily basis. And the crazy thing about it, and, and, and maybe people outside of the media um, recognize this very readily. I can tell you anybody who's worked within media has a pretty good feel for there's, there's always a decision to be made about, well, what's worth covering? What is worth telling? And most often the deception that you and I are going to encounter in our day-to-day lives isn't going to be some big, bald-faced lie just, you know, trotted out there. Well, you know, the moon really is made of green cheese. And, you know, we're just expected to suspend disbelief and, and absolutely embrace it. No, it's more the things that we're not being told. In other words, there's context lacking. There is... Uh, there, there are inconvenient facts. Like we talked about, you know, the anything that to disappoints or that otherwise threatens the narrative is pretended to not even exist. So it's the, the omission of pertinent facts, as well as the way things are sometimes shaded to, well, well, you know, so-and-so claimed that uh, they hadn't done this, you know, whereas when it's a government source, uh, government officials affirmed that this is the case. And, you know, it's, it's subtle. But you learn that language can be manipulated, and sometimes the choice of words requires a little bit closer parsing and understanding of what exactly are they trying to say here. Or maybe, as the case is, what are they trying not to say? The bottom line is this, though. The propaganda is real, it is thick as flies, and the only hope you have is to become as propaganda-proof as you can as an individual. Now, that means some effort. Right? This means you've got to be the one to uh, essentially sharpen your own blade, you know, as far as uh, being able to discern fact from fiction. That's not something that's just naturally, you know, born into you. It's, it's not an in, inborn, you know, trait. You have to work to develop it. You have to develop a healthy sense of skepticism. And, and this is probably the toughest part of all. You've got to learn to trust your judgment. If something seems off or manipulative, chances are good. You're right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This program is not about giving you the talking points, which you can then go forth and dutifully regurgitate for anybody within earshot. No, I like to take a little bit different approach. It's not that I have all the answers, but man, I have access to some tremendous resources for wrong thinkers. And I literally spend my day looking for the best information, the most credible and principle-based information I can find, and then sharing it with you 
And what you do with that information, well, that is entirely up to you. Because I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm just here to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as possible. And that means question everything, including whatever I happen to be sharing with you. With that in mind, I've got some great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include Dixie Chiropractic, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. Ah, where to begin? Just a, just kind of a quick recap of some of the things, or I guess a preview of the things we're going to be covering in this hour of the show. We're going to talk about uh, turning off the story that's playing in our minds. I'll get to that one in just a moment. also want to spend a little bit of time about uh, how uh, the strangest thing today is how, how often and in how many ways we're expected to deny reality. Got a great one from the Good Citizen Substack that I think you're going to really like. Also, the collapse of trust in our society. It's going on. It's real. What exactly does it mean? What does it portend for our relationship to the ruling class? And last but not least, when I want a very serious, no-crap assessment of what's going on, James Howard Kunstler is an excellent resource. He's got a great take and, and actually some pretty good advice on some of the things that we could be doing. He's exploring solutions, as we all should be. Let's start, though, with uh, with Paul Rosenberg's latest. He says, it's a good idea to turn off the story in our minds. And I know for some people that's not going to make a whole lot of sense, but the, the title here is, For Important Decisions, Turn Off the Story. Paul Rosenberg says, humans have a complicated relationship with the stories they tell themselves. Sometimes they tell themselves stories to practice real-life situations. Sometimes they go through I-should-have-said scenarios to either improve or to wallow in their misery. And sometimes they tell themselves lies to make themselves feel better about something. And, of course, there are almost infinite variations. Now, he says, I'm aware that I don't fully understand this subject. I don't think anyone does. But I know we do these things. I can point to beneficial instances and harmful instances but I definitely don't understand everything that lies behind them. That said, Paul Rosenberg writes, I know enough to discuss certain instances of self-stories, and one of those is the clash between our stories and our choices. So one of the most common types of human problems occurs when we knew that we were about to make a mistake, but we did it anyway. I think we've all experienced this. If I could just give this as an aside, um, yelling at my kids. I know it's unproductive. I know it's it's harmful. It's it's doing nothing except just yelling, venting. But did I do it anyway? Yeah. Why? Well, I don't know. Even though I knew it was wrong, even though I was sure this is this is not what I should be doing, it felt good at the moment. Yeah, I'm not happy about that, by the way. I'm actually pretty ashamed, but that's to me that's that's an example of it. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, fundamentally, the problem in these cases is mental inertia, that we've already started moving in a certain direction and somehow can't let ourselves be stopped. Now, one interesting thing about these processes is that our initial actions or our commitment to those actions not only want to continue, but somehow diminishes the realization that we do better by changing them. In other words, somehow our brains obscure inputs that go against our existing movements that threaten our inertia. And he says, I hope I'm making this clear. Well, these are universal experiences. They're all so murky and we don't really have a vocabulary that suits them. 
So a first problem is that our thought streams do not like to be interrupted. Now, perhaps that has something to do with energy consumption. Perhaps it has to do with disliking self-contradiction. Or perhaps it's something else, even a palette of things. In any event, this is something that happens to us. It's what happens next that is his subject. And that is justifying actions already in motion with concurrent stories. In other words, the story is what makes it okay. This is how we justify doing the wrong thing, even though we know it's wrong. So he says, let's follow the progress of, I kind of knew, but I did it anyway, mistakes. We made a commitment to something and initiated it. We perceive, perhaps mutedly, that we should probably stop. Our ongoing stream of action doesn't want to be interrupted. Now he says, I'm speaking metaphorically because I just don't know a better way to do this. At this point, we are back to reasoning rather than observing and reacting. Now he says, in my experience, there's still some inertia and muting going on, but at least we're referring to reason and trying to decide whether to continue the action or stop it. He says, usually one part of us really wants to continue the first action, but another part is demanding to consider it first. And this is the part, or this is the point, rather, where the story plays its role. More than likely, there was some type of story or narrative running while we made the initial choice. And he says, more likely, it's still running in the back of our heads. So when we begin questioning the inertia of the original choice, the story to use a pro-wrestling metaphor, jumps into the ring and fights alongside its partner. If then reason must face off against not only inertia, but inertia's partner also, reason usually gets tossed out of the ring. And thus most of us experience a long string of mistakes of this type. So how do we fix it? All right, this is where it gets interesting. He says the first and fastest fix for this is the title of this post. Once you sense this process inside yourself, stop and turn off the story. It's competing unfairly. Cry foul and direct it out of the ring. Now, he says the crucial part is that it, in, in that is to recognize our inner processes. And this is clearly not something beyond our ability. If you recognize this type of error, you're already recognizing such things. But getting better at this would help us quite a bit. It further seems that once you can say, no story, not fair, the entire inertia issue goes away, leaving you to reason freely. So that's the first fix, he says, and it works. It'll probably train your inner processes to become more agile. He says, I can't be certain about that, but that's how it seems to him. That's probably the best we can do with this right now. Someday, some young psychologist will make a study of this and clarify it for us, but after that, we'll be able to deal with it more intelligently and directly. But even now, we have the ability to stop much of the damage. We notice what's going on, tell the story that that piling on isn't fair, and to leave the ring. And then make undisturbed choices. At the same time, teaching our inner parts to get in touch with, to get with the new program, rather, as well. Now, finally, he says, I should add that first turn off the story can apply very broadly. Again, going back to the the post's title. When making a hard decision, what he means is making sure that there's not a story playing in the background and affecting your choice. Notice the story that's running and turn it off. Make the decision clearly. And he says, I'm convinced this could save you piles of trouble. I'll admit, I recognize what he's saying, but I have never given it serious thought and contemplation like, oh, yeah, you know, this is something I've thought about myself. 
No, it, it, it wasn't until he pointed it out that I realized, oh, yeah, I do that. In fact, I've done that a lot. But rather than sit here and wallow in, oh, the shame, <laughs> it, it shows me, okay, there's, a, there's an area for self-improvement. I think we get really used to the, the narrative that's running in our heads, right? We're, we're all kind of the star of our own lives, and we, we have a story, and hopefully, you know, there's a heroic aspect to it. I mean, in some cases, that can get built up to uh, um, delusional proportions, but for the most part, I think we're really trying to tell a good, honest story, and that narrative running in our heads is trying to tell us, no, 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 you're right, you're on the right path, but every so often... Usually it's in hindsight. I'll sit back and realize, you know, in retrospect, I really wish I had done things differently. And I probably would have done things differently had I just made the story stop and questioned what I was about to do. And for the record, you know what the most common thing is that I would have done differently? Maybe this will surprise you, maybe it won't. I would have shut up. I would have said nothing. So that's how I see it. Thank you, Paul Rosenberg, for pointing out something that uh, um, I'm going to definitely be thinking about and, and paying attention to in my own life. Now, whether you do this, that's, that's up to you. I've got a link to his article in my show notes. You can find it at thebrianheidshow.com. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, it's a simple matter of go to my website, thebrianheidshow.com, click on the daily show notes. Down at the bottom of the page, you'll see the subscribe button. It's going to ask for your email which I will not share and I will not sell to anybody else. I will only use it to drop a copy into your inbox each day that I do the program. Oh, and it's free of charge. Can't beat the price. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. HSLAmmo.com is one of my sponsors. You know, there's I, I don't really know... I don't know a great way to tell you the, the advantages of purchasing your ammo from HSL other than Spencer Worthington is the founder of HSL Ammo. He is a businessman in southern Utah who provides a tremendous amount of value for his community and a very useful commodity for those who either enjoy the shooting sports or understand how ammo is a wonderful store of value. I, you know, I'm, I'm not ashamed to tell you I think lead, copper, and brass are actually a great, uh, great way to get into precious metals. If, if silver and gold are a bit rich for your blood, I promise you there is always, uh, there's always some utility and always some value that people will hold for ammunition. So if you're looking for a way to you know, put aside a store of value, that's a great way to do it. Oh, and here's another bonus. Bullets don't require electricity. Hmm, go figure. I've got a link in the show notes, hslammo.com. It would make me very happy if you are in the market for some ammo, if you would do business with HSL Ammo. Well, the sheer amount of uh, ways that we are expected to deny reality is mind-blowing. And the Good Citizen has a remarkable uh, post on on their substack here, uh, pushing maximum density. Bloated, gassy creatures in swimsuits and the denial of agency and reality. And and we're looking at, this is the Sports Illustrated uh, swimsuit issue cover. And there's some from, you know, years past, Look, I remember in high school, my buddies and I, we were always quite excited when the, uh, you know, Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue came out. 
And why not? I mean, they, they, they definitely picked the very best eye candy for that. But Swimsuit 2022, I, I'm trying to choose my words carefully, but um, these models are thick with two Cs. So thick, in fact, that their cellulite makes the cover of corporate bikini rags, says the, the, the good citizen. There's thickness and then there's thickness. Other people are so thick that they now believe morbid obesity is beautiful. Now, the good citizen says it's easier to believe a noble lie that feels good for the thick younger generations, yet helps nobody, than it is to put down a triple bacon cheeseburger and go move around. Bloated, gassy misery loves high-caloric, low-sustenance company, even in the form of other bloated, gassy loafers pushing maximum density. OMG, if, like, she can make the cover of Sports Illustrated, then, like, I totally can, too, and I don't even need to stop supersizing my combo meals. Now, the elusive, inspirational idea of aspirational beauty is now dead. Hard work and dedication through discipline and setting goals no longer matter. Anyone can be anything if we all agree to deny reality hard enough and make exceptions for the weakest among us because we forget strength and survival. We're only as tolerant as we are accepting the deficiencies of our weakest links. Instead of a rising tide to help everyone, let's scuttle all boats until we're all at the bottom of the sea. And so we rework our Western stage play to accommodate all actors while denying their agency and ignoring the hard truths of reality. Anyone can be a supermodel because nothing needs to be earned when meritocracy is dead. Even bloated, gassy cows can be supermodels. Think about the real supermodel who knows this but has to keep her mouth shut or risk never working again. Everybody plays their part. Throw one of those bloated, gassy cows in a bikini and work a little Photoshop magic for the latest Sports Illustrated bloated cows uh, with penises in swimsuits edition, and you have the perfect visual of just how deep the present rot festers in the diseased bowels of Western civilization. Yes, some of them now have penises. Soon there will be trans models topless after top surgery, surgery with bulging prosthetic penises in their bikini bottoms. You think I'm joking? but give it a year. They'll expect us all to agree that this mentally confused person is incredibly brave and beautiful. When mass mental illness is mainstreamed and encouraged through over-medication and blind tolerance, then the operation continues until we all agree to be mentally confused. The entire Western world becomes one dysfunctional insane asylum until enough of us scream, Enough! Cue the mob of brainwashed, brainwashed panty melts into their apoplectic screaming formations. What did you say? Don't be so intolerant. These top surgery scars are beautiful, and so is that fake penis. Somewhere in the dark, oak-paneled, cigar-smoky room, there are some three-piece-suited businessmen having a hell of a laugh at our expense. When they're not busy planning our futures, they're testing the limits of our own acceleration toward collective insanity. Everything is one woke gag diversion after another. Now, the good citizen says, you might think this is an overreaction, but this is not a small thing. Denial of reality itself is an incredibly big problem. Now, in Russia, he says, they're, they're not putting bloated, gassy cows with prosthetic penises in bikinis and calling them beautiful. Nor is China or India or Hungary or based Brazil. They had no time for it in Sri Lanka, where food is scarce and politicians' heads are being substituted for cricket balls. Even in holy Ukraine, they blocked the trans people from leaving the country, put a rifle in their hands, and sent them directly to the Donbass meat grinders. 
Now, if you were born a male but you lopped it off, go and fight for the oligarchs and Western war hyenas who are busy washing American taxpayer money through the Kiev laundromats. They're not even doing this obesity glorifying in Poland or France. In France, they don't sell a size larger than XL, and their XL is the equivalent of a U.S. large. They still fat shame in France because they know the value of embarrassing someone toward motivation. The good citizen says, when I lived in France, I went to see a general practitioner for a health issue. Before parting ways, he asked how my health was otherwise. Fine, I replied. Are you sure, he asked, because maybe you could lose some kilograms and be healthier. Loud record scratch noise. What? A doctor wanting their patient to be healthier while not forcing some deadly addictive pill on them? At the time, I'd let myself go to 196 pounds, but was lifting weights and jogging a few times a week, so didn't think anything of it. But my midsection was heavier, and I knew the doctor was right. The French doctor had fat-shamed me, and bless his soul for that, because over the next two months, I lost 18 pounds, most of it belly fat, and got fitter than I had been since my early 20s. Fat-shaming works. Glorifying morbid obesity and type 2 diabetes is something only a mentally ill society would do. Imagine the French doctor relocating to the States and telling a patient to get some exercise and lose some weight because they were less than 20 pounds overweight. He would have to do that with 90% of his patients. Hyper-offended nitwit takes out 16-megapixel camera phone in a luxury SUV, presses the streaming button on InstaShame to perform for their 12 followers. So, like, get this, everyone. Oh, my gosh. Guys, my new doctor, this French guy, just told me to, like, lose weight. I know, right? He, like, totally fat-shamed me, and I was just so, oh, my gosh, I can't even believe that just happened. I'm, like, literally in shock. Yeah, I'm going to call my lawyer. That's, like, just not okay with me. First, I'm totally starving, and Carl's Jr. sounds so good right now. All right, only in America, Canada, and the U.K. is morbid obesity being sold to young girls as beautiful. Sports Illustrated used to be a magazine for men especially the swimsuit issue. Do the young men today get turned on by looking at bloated, gassy cows in bikinis? While testosterone levels in all men have been plummeting by design for the depopulation agenda, poisoned water and foods, EMF, plastics, it just doesn't seem like evolutionary psychology would work that quickly at the whims of devious social engineers who want people to believe morbid obesity is not a disgusting turnoff. They still want us to believe that beauty is also relative. It's like that famous quote about beauty. In America, beauty is in the eye of the drive through worker at the second window. <laughs> I've not heard that one before, but I actually like it. Now, there's the whole denial of reality as well. We call them plus-size models because we wouldn't dare call them fat models. The goal of fat models is to make sure their bread stays buttered, and they do this by eating. They don't go to the gym unless it's to pretend to work out while giving 20% effort and taking selfies. They must stay as fat as possible while playing along with the mentally ill people around them who constantly tell them how beautiful they are and feed their unhealthy pretenses. It's just another spoke in the wheel of reality denialism that allows new constructs to be built from the ashes of reality's burnt corpse. I know, this is some pretty straight-up truth. There is no sugarcoating on that red pill. Nonetheless, you will find a link to this article in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. If you dare, click on it and give it a thorough read. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. There's actually a link in my show notes. Click on it. Start shopping. I bet you'll find some kind of food storage or emergency preparedness that will just make you go, hey, I could sleep better at night if I knew that uh, that was part of my preps. All right, I'm going to come back here for a moment to the uh, the Good Citizens substack on pushing maximum density. And I look, I know, look, I'm overweight, so I'm, I'm not pointing a finger at anybody that shouldn't be pointed back at me. I'm probably carrying 40 pounds more of me than I should. But I agree with what the Good Citizen is pointing out here, that we are being conditioned into denying reality. When you see people who are, and I mean literally morbidly obese, way beyond just, yeah, they're carrying a few extra pounds. I mean, they're like really carrying a lot of extra weight. And we're told, this is beautiful. This is healthy. That's not an invitation to go around, you know, picking on people or fat shaming people. But why are we supposed to pretend that this is normal? In the same vein that we're supposed to pretend that, you know, people who are mutilating their bodies, cutting off their sex organs, removing their breasts and whatnot to try to be, you know, this trans individual. We're supposed to pretend that that's normal, too. Again, I mean no unkindness because I I think my opinion is these are people who are dealing with some kind of mental trauma. And I don't mean that in the sense that they ought to be locked away in an asylum. They deserve compassion. They have value. They are God's children just as much as you and I are. And they deserve love and support. But is it really loving and supporting someone to, to play into a, a deluded state of mind? Would you agree with a person who has anorexia? Oh, I'm so fat, even as they're wasting away to skin and bones. Yeah, you're right. You could stand to lose a little bit more weight. Would you do that just for the, the sake of assuaging their feelings? Of course not. Back to the article here. The Good Citizen says this is all just another spoke in the wheel of reality denialism. The cultural Soviets are everywhere meddling with social constructs that propagate, insert something harmful but completely fabricated for their ideological agenda here. If they're not grooming and confusing children with gender pronouns and biological denialism, they're telling them it's okay to be fat or even obese. All science is subverted for tolerance of everything in service to ideological indoctrination. So bloated, gassy cows in bikinis example. Traditional beauty standards propagate cis-heteronormative, toxic masculine standards of patriarchal culture and subjugate women by denying them full autonomy over their bodies. Okay, here's the common sense psycho-ideological translation. It's okay to be a fat cow, ladies. You're still beautiful because beauty comes in all sizes, even in size type 2. In fact, the uglier you make yourself, the harder you stick it to the toxic masculine patriarchy and the more liberated you will be. The result? Piercings, tattoos, dedicated ugliness, gender-bending, sexual confusion, and obesity accepted as beauty. If I were a conspiracy-minded fellow, I might say the population controllers love this because it means less attractive females for the few males remaining who have sufficient testosterone levels to even want to procreate. And so movements like men going their own way are born and reproduction rates fall below replacement levels for two generations. And don't think I'm giving a pass to the fat men out there, ladies. He says, I see them too, but the mentally ill culture movers aren't glorifying their obesity at the behest of global management, only their pregnancies. Tolerance of the intolerable is the suicide of civilizations. 
That's according to T. Good Charlie. Making both sexes fat, lazy, drugged up, passive, and always sick is a great way to control the population. Mess with the food supplies, crops, water, the air, and blast everyone with electromagnetic frequencies like 5G that slowly damage their biological cellular function, and it's a cocktail recipe made in the Club of Rome kitchen. Then there's the denial of agency. And this part really spoke to me. To the mentally ill Borg, denying an individual agency allows that individual to be subsumed by group identity. Group identity labels become key signifiers for ideological conformity. Each group is a victim of traditional Western culture. Women are victims of the dominant male patriarchy. Blacks and Latinos are poor victims of white racist culture. Everything that needs to be destroyed can be through creating group identities and blaming their oppression on other groups. This is merely power shifting disguised as altruism and tolerance. Each group is used by those who want more power. For neoliberals and progressives, the groups are tools that are easy to manipulate, control, subjugate, and exploit by denying each individual's agency within the group. They then vote for their slave masters every chance they get while celebrating their chains or their victimhood and becoming missionaries who spread their gospel propaganda to transform others into slaves by getting them to deny their agency too. By denying agency... Obesity is not the fault of the individual. It's the culture of cheap fast food. It's just a part of modern life. It's the fault of the advertising industry, which creates unrealistic beauty standards. And it's a lack of education about healthy eating. This last one is a favorite of diet gurus who for 40 years have made billions educating the masses with special diets and plans. Very few offer tough, honest love by telling people the truth. The first step in transforming oneself toward a solution is accepting full responsibility for the problem. Nobody has the guts for honesty and tough love, so it's never the fault of the individual who consumes more calories than they exert through movement and exercise. Those supreme nacho platters and double-stuffed pizzas just magically went down my gullet. I don't know how those three bear claws ended up in my stomach. Denial of, re of responsibility means we all have to pretend the morbidly obese are victims of everything else except their own poor choices. By calling the morbidly obese beautiful, we are socially assisting their slow suicide while culturally assisting ours as well. Global management loves it when people help them by simultaneously denying reality and agency and dying faster. He says, a few weeks ago, while going for drinks with a Polish friend, she needed to stop by her grandmother's place to check on her. We had taken a river walk, and it was on the way toward the center of town. Grandmother's 85 and lives alone in a one-bedroom apartment that hasn't seen renovation since Khrushchev ruled the region via whatever Polish communist leader was in power at the time. While she checked on her grandmother, I politely asked to use the restroom. As I'm washing up, I notice the medicine cabinet has no mirror or door, and the shelves are pretty empty. Now, in the States, you usually see about 20 orange bottles in an octogenarian's medicine cabinet. I got curious and checked the drawers and under the sink. Nothing. I went snooping around and checked the bedroom nightstands and drawers. Nothing. When I got back to the kitchen, I did some more light snooping where I could. Nothing. While sipping vodka and chatting with grandmother via my friend translating, I asked about COVID and asked if she feared getting ill and told her she seemed pretty healthy before eventually asking if she took any medications. 85 years old, still strong as an ox, and not on any prescription medications. In fact, the last prescription she filled was for a toe fungus years ago. 
none of those bloated, gassy models in bikinis will live to see 55 let alone 85. Most of them probably take more prescription medications at 25 than my friend's grandmother. But hey, let's all pretend type 2 diabetes is fierce and beautiful. This endless merry-go-round pushing maximum density through thickness and thickness is sure to benefit someone. Who could it be? The answer is a bunch of dicks laughing at all of us in cigar-smoky rooms. I should probably offer this disclaimer. This contains some kind of adult themes that kids should never listen to. Sorry, I should, should have done that at the beginning. No, it's this is pretty blunt. And and as a person who's carrying again some extra weight, I, I hope this isn't uh, feeling like a slap in the face to those who have weight issues. My wife and I have both, uh, you know, we've been married now for 31, almost 32 years. And, you know, as we as we look at ourselves in the mirror, we're like, dang, time and gravity, they're really taking a toll on both of us. And I'm going to go so far as to say that, you know, everybody sub- suffers that fate to some degree. To me, one of the saddest things that, that you'll see are the, the movie stars who, you know, they get up there in age and they just, they're not willing to let, to let time have its way. So plastic surgery and whatever it takes to, to maintain that illusion of beauty. Finally, they become almost a cartoon caricature of themselves. That's sad. There's something to be said for aging grace, gracefully. But the crux of what the good citizen is saying here, that we are told to look at things that, uh, that are not healthy, whether it be a person's weight, whether it be a person mutilating themselves sexually to, to try to f- fill some, uh, uh, some mental problem of how they see themselves. None of this is healthy. But if you say that, you are accused of being a bigot. You're accused of, you know, being, you know, the, the worst possible human being. But you have a choice to make here. I mean, do you, do you just go along? Do you pretend, oh, the emperor's new clothes? Yes, why, they are they are the prettiest thing I've ever seen. Or do you just keep your mouth shut and hope nobody notices that you're, like, aghast? <laughs> or do you speak the truth? You don't have to speak it harshly, but, you know, if you give me the choice between, look, you either, uh, you either hold to reality or you say what we tell you to say, I'm going to hold to reality. I don't care how painful it gets. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. And a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can click on the email link I provide in my show notes under the sponsors section. You can also call her at 435-703-4522. Why the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage? Simply this. Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. If you need a loan, a home loan, a reverse mortgage, a traditional loan, VA loan, whatever it may be, she can get the job done and done quickly. Plain and simple. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, very happy to have her as a sponsor of the show. 
Okay, two quick articles I want to touch on in the closing segment here. Do you ever feel obligated to do something just because, or, or when, let me ask it this way. Do you feel obligated to do something when the person telling you, hey, you need to do this, is someone you don't trust? Because it depends on who's saying it, right? If it's someone in a position of supposed authority, well, I guess I kind of have to, whether I trust him or not. Do you really? Alan J. Pfeiffer outlines the collapse of trust in our society. And he says, looking at the issues facing our country, there seems to be something pernicious for which we don't seem to know what to do to correct the downward trajectory shaking us to our core. Now, the issue at play now is that the majority of Americans have lost trust in our ability to govern and also whether our leaders are even telling us the truth or if we're simply being manipulated. In fact, he provides a few examples that are emblematic of the breadth and depth of the issues we face. So, for instance, on the Supreme Court leaker, let's not deal with the leak itself, just the fact that the sanctity of the court was broken. No one seems to want to do anything about it and the likely effect it will have on future deliberations and decisions. Why has this traitor not been outed? And he says, I say traitor because the individual wants to effectively substitute his or her opinion over that of the Supreme Court. Think about that for a moment. My understanding is that the list of suspects contains about 40 individuals, three weeks in, and the suspect has not been identified. That person must be found and outed. The Supreme Court cannot stand if we as a country lose faith in the deliberative process, which is foundational to the functioning of our country. That's what's really on the line. All right, here's another example. Baby formula. The closing of the Abbott facility was a botched job. Everyone knew 40% of the formula produced in the U.S. came from a single plant. Now, we might forgive the failure of forethought in not diversifying our supply years ago. But this complete breakdown of responsibility by the FDA and the president through his staff for not having raised the alarm as week by week the problems grew worse four months before the plant closing is hard to take. There was a heads up that this might happen back in September of 2021. And it would have been reasonable to commence planning for a, labor, for a shortage of a baby formula right then. Hungry babies in America are a new low for our country, but it comes on the heels of one crisis after another. Then there's the war in Ukraine. Intelligence experts claim they warned the administration that Russia was going to attack in April of 2021. We rewarded every minor withdrawal or diminishment of tensions with a pat on Putin's back. Russian strategy was effective in keeping the U.S. and its allies sleeping for too long. Instead of sending lethal weapons in quantity, we sent mostly non-lethal aid to Ukraine before the war's commencement. Even after Ukraine was brutally attacked in a massive combined arms invasion, we sent mixed messages to the Russians who believe we lack the resolve to do what it takes to win. This ambiguity is how world wars start. This is a huge breach of trust in how Americans perceive the effectiveness of our leaders. But I'm going to differ from Mr. Pfeiffer on this one. Because it's not a matter of, well, if the U.S. would have got more involved and sent more lethal weapons sooner, the U.S. government is very much responsible for the hostilities currently going on in Ukraine because they have enabled the Ukrainian government. They helped with the overthrow of its democratically elected president back in 2014. They have played a role in exacerbating the hostilities which have existed between Ukraine and Russia for quite some time. And they've been endlessly poking the bear ever since that time and uh, will likely do so right up until there's some kind of nuclear exchange. 
I'm not a fan of, of Russia's leadership. I'm certainly not a fan of our own leadership. And I reiterate again, there are no good guys in this scenario. And since when is it to the U.S.'s job to, to get in and mediate a border dispute between Russia and its next-door neighbor? They're making it their business. If you maintain, well, it is our business because we uh, have to be a force for good in the world. I hope you can keep that uh, broad perspective when it's your sons and your daughters being sent off to die for something that has nothing whatsoever to do with our freedoms. Then there's the sky-high cost of energy. Why do we have a shortage of energy? And are we being told the truth? The salient question every American should ask is, have they been deceived by the president? Old circleback Saki was asked endlessly why we're producing less energy even today. Pre-pandemic, under Trump, the U.S. was producing a record 13 million barrels of oil per day, and we were even exporting it. Production fell 3 million barrels per day due to slack in demand. Production's now back up to 11.6 million barrels per day, but it's not accelerating. Why? Could the underlying reason be the simple truth that Biden articulated in 2019? I want to look you I want you to look at my eyes. I guarantee you, I guarantee you we're going to end fossil fuel. Is he just keeping his promises and not lie, and and lying to the rest of us? My take is simple, says Mr. Pfeiffer. He wants high prices and cares not about damage to the American family and its position in the world to support his Green New Deal initiatives. There are so many basic issues that are similar to those above and just as disheartening, immigration, woke policies, education, COVID, even setting one race against another. We could go on seemingly endlessly. Is it any wonder we don't trust our government, its leaders, policies, and even its good intentions any longer? We have arrived at a point that appears intentional. The utter disregard for breaking the sacred bond between ordinary Americans and their leadership, fealty to the principles and practices of a nation that has stood for good, stood for a better tomorrow, and been that beacon of hope to the entire world, is now in doubt. Now again, this is an article from Alan J. Pfeiffer. I'll link to it so you can, uh, can check it out for yourself. One final note here, and I'm just going to touch on a couple of things. Uh, when I want a real... No crud assessment of what's going on in the world. James Howard Kunstler is uh, one of my go-to sources. And he not only uh, does a very good job of connecting the dots, but he does it with a pretty fair amount of humor as well. He says, now we're finding out the hard way how much daily life must change and is changing, and how disorderly that process is in every way from the imperative daily life adjustments to our spiritual attitudes about them. He says, when I wrote The Long Emergency nearly 20 years ago, I never thought that once it got going, our government would work so hard to make it worse. He says, my theory then was that was just that government would become increasingly bloated, ineffectual, impotent, and uncomprehending of the forces converging to undermine our advanced techno-industrial societies. What I didn't imagine was that government would bring such ostentatious stupidity to it. Now, obviously, there was some recognition that ominous changes are coming down. Otherwise, we wouldn't have heard so much chatter about alt-energy, sustainable growth, green this and that. But the chatter was more symptomatic of wishful thinking for at least a couple of reasons. Mostly, it ignored the laws of physics, despite the fact that so many people involved in enterprises such as wind and solar energy were science and tech mavens. And number two, there was a dumb assumption that the general shape and scale of daily life would remain as it has been. 
In other words, that we could still run suburbia, the giant cities, Disney World, Walmart, the U.S. military, and the interstate highway system just the way they were already set up, only by means other than oil and gas. But he says, now we're finding out the hard way, how much daily life must change and is changing, and just how disorderly that process is in every way from the imperative personal adjustments to our spiritual attitudes about them. As with so many things in history, this disorder expresses itself strangely, even prankishly, as if God were a practical joker. Who would have imagined that our politics would become so deranged, that there would be battles over teaching oral sex in the fifth grade, that the CDC would keep pushing vaccines that obviously don't work, and that so many people would still take them, that stealing stuff under $1,000 in value wouldn't merit prosecution, that riots featuring arson and looting are mostly peaceful, that we'd spend $50 billion halfway around the world to defend the borders of another country while ignoring the defense of our own borders, that financially beset Americans would spend their dwindling cash on tattoos. Well, you get the idea. The problems are real. He actually has a very interesting solution that he outlines, you know, for at least some of the problems in this article. I'm not going to give you the spoiler, but I'm going to encourage you, click on the link I provide in my show notes. You can access them at thebrianheidshow.com. Yep, we got some tough stuff ahead of us. Difficult decisions to make. Challenging circumstances. Just remember, we are up to this task. But you got to be willing to question the narrative and, if necessary, to march to the beat of your own drum. This is The Brian Hyde Show.